Since we're moving very slowly through this book, or I should say very thoroughly through this book, we should read the first four verses again because we're still in them. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and according to the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now you've all heard of Alexander the Great. I don't know that he was as great as he was cracked up to be, though in his own right he was great because by 31 years of age he had conquered the known world and he sat down in Babylon and wept that there was just nothing left to conquer. There were no more people he could beat up. And he was discouraged and despondent over that. Toward the end of his life, when Alexander was ill of a grave disease, his friend and his doctor, one and the same person, his physician, came to him and gave him a mixture to drink, a medicine, a potion. Before he drank it, someone put a note into his hand and he opened it up and read it and said that within that potion was poison, that his friend was going to poison him, he shouldn't drink it. In one hand he held the note, in the other hand he held the medicine. He held them both up, he drank the medicine, and as soon as it was done, after drinking the potion, he handed the note to the doctor. He said, read it. Proving to his friend how much he trusted him implicitly with his life, And he said, see now how I have trusted you. His faith in his friend prompted inaction. He was willing to drink a potion, even though someone said it was poison because he believed in the integrity of his friend. He was willing to stake his life drinking that potion. Now, one of the most often quoted scriptures in the Bible by Christians is in the book of James where it says, even as... The body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now what James meant by that is faith, to be true faith, is never dormant. It's alive. It's making progress. It's going somewhere. And that's really the theme that we pick up on tonight, is how does faith work? He mentions faith, starts off mentioning faith in verse 1, the faith of God's elect. And really, that is the main subject through the first few verses. There are several strings of thought, but the main thought that we can tie everything to is the theme of faith in the first four verses. He talks about the faith of God's elect, and he talks about that faith, when you hear the truth in verse 1, it leads to godliness. So if we were to sum up so far what we've learned, we would say that faith is elective. God chooses us before we were even born. Secondly, faith is productive. It leads, or it accords, as it says in the New King Jimmy. It accords with godliness. It leads to godliness. Now, in verses 2 through 4, and that's what we're going to cover tonight, even though we looked at them briefly in the last couple weeks, 
We're going to really zero in on verses 2, 3, and 4 tonight. And it's the same thought, how faith works. Now, if you have a New International Version, it renders verse 2 with the same thought of faith as it did in verse 1. In fact, it says, a faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Now, since we're doing this in depth, let's just go back and get a little capsulized version of what we've learned so far. We talked about Paul's co-worker named Titus. We gave a full description in the first study, the first session, of who Titus was, where he came from. He was a Greek believer, probably led to faith by Paul the Apostle. Then we see that he became sort of like a troubleshooter, sent out on special assignments, and one of them was the island of Crete. We looked ahead at verse 5, where he said, I've put you in Crete to set in order those things that are lacking and to ordain elders in every city. Then we looked at, in the same study, Paul's correspondence, that is, the letter itself. Why was it written? And that led us to our second study in Titus. This is our third. And in our second, we looked at Paul's credentials in verse 1. Bondservant, apostle. Those were his credentials, his calling card. I'm a slave of God and I'm an apostle sent out to do whatever God wants me to do. And then finally we looked at his calling. And we saw that Paul's calling, as outlined in these verses, was to bring people to faith in Christ and to bring them to maturity, to a godly walk. And so that left us off with really verses 1 and 2 and part of verse 4. We continue tonight the same stream of thought from the faith that was introduced in verse 1 and now in verse 2 where it says uh, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Tonight we're going to look at faith. How faith works. How faith works. As we go through this study tonight, as in every Bible study, by the way, we ought to be taking personal inventory. You know, it's always a temptation when you hear a study to think of someone else who needs this. I'm going to get the tape for her. Boy, she can really use this. And that might be true. But it's always good first to drink it in ourselves and take personal inventory. Kind of have our own report card on your faith. What about your own faith? Tonight we're going to see that true faith is hopeful, responsible, and gracious. Let's look at verse 2. Faith that is hopeful. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Or faith resting on the hope of eternal life. You know, somebody once said that man can live for 40 days without food, three days without water, about eight minutes without air, and only seconds without hope. Our faith in Jesus Christ is leading us somewhere. It's expecting something more than what we have now. And that expectation is eternal life. It's hope in eternal life which God promised before time began. Uh, to put it in Peter's words, in First Peter, his first epistle, we have been born again to a living hope. That's important to see this, that the Christian faith is not just a temporary fix. It's not a self-help program, one of many philosophies that you can sort of drink from to get you through this life. It's not a temporary placebo. It outlasts this life. 
It's got something more than just what are the benefits now. It's got some eternal benefits. It's the hope of eternal life. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, Paul the Apostle spends a whole chapter speaking about rising from the dead, which is the hinge of the Christian faith. Is that Jesus died, but He didn't stay there. He rose up and came out of the tomb. And that our hope rests upon the resurrection. And he speaks about future hope. After we die, we'll be with Him in glory in heaven. Then he ends that section by saying, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitiable. Again, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitiable. Now think about that. Think of all of the martyrs through church history who have given their life, willing to die for their confession in Jesus Christ. Think of all the missionaries who have sold things, gone to foreign countries, willing to be persecuted, beat up for Jesus Christ. Think of all the persecutions through church history. Now, for what? A lot of them didn't feel good now. They weren't going through and going, oh, great, yeah, this is a good life. Just got beat up today. The idea is that there's something that outstrips the temporary. It's the hope of eternal life. Otherwise, it's all in vain, Paul said. We're of all men most miserable because look at what people have given up. Oh, we have abundant life now. But there's something that outlasts this life. So we sing a song, don't we? Great is thy faithfulness. One of the stanzas is, Help for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. There's more to life for us than just this life. There's eternal life. I heard a story of an explorer. Actually, there were two streams of exploration down at the tip of South America. And the first team of explorers was sailing around that lower cape of South America under stormy seas. The boat was ready to break apart. The captain of the expedition, because the storms were so outrageous and he didn't want to weather them, turned back and called the name of that cape the Cape of Storms. Now, several years later, another explorer, you might remember his name, I don't know, seventh grade history, I think it was, named Vasco da Gama, who sailed around that cape through the same kind of stormy waters, but he renamed it the Cape of Good Hope. Because he looked beyond the storms and couldn't wait to get to the land because of all of the riches, the jewels, and the hope that it promised to go to this new land. The Cape of Good Hope. You could call it the Cape of Storms or the Cape of Good Hope. You could look at your life as, oh, it's so many storms, so many problems. But what's ahead? It's a cape of good hope. So faith is hopeful based upon a living hope. Folks, this is what separates the men from the boys, so to speak. It separates the believer from the unbeliever. The unbeliever is plopped in the middle of this world to navigate for himself, trying to figure out meaning, purpose in this life, usually coming up with one big question mark. All that the unbeliever has is a hopeless end. We have an endless hope. It's the hope of eternal life, which God promised. 
You have, if you've been here at the church for any length of time, have studied with us the terms for life in the Bible. But I think it bears going over so you understand the importance of the term eternal life in the Bible. The Bible speaks of life three different ways, and only one of those ways is translated eternal or everlasting life. It's the word ionios, or ages, and zoe, or life. Now, the Bible uses three terms. The first word is bios, where we get our word biology, biosphere. And as you might suspect, it's a term that speaks only of physical life. It's the quality of life. It's the uh, standard of living, if you will. It's how you biologically are getting along. And this is usually where most people outside of Christ, some inside of Christ, spend all of their time, their biological well-being. The Bible speaks of this kind of life rarely, and when it does, negatively. Jesus spoke about seed that was sown on different kinds of soil. It says, the cares of this life choked up the seed and it became unfruitful. The cares of this bios, this biological life, just trying to feel comfortable here. Then there's a second term in the Bible. It's the term suke. We get our term psychology from it, or psyche. It speaks about the personality, and the Bible uses it, but not always in a favorable term. Jesus said you have to surrender your life to gain it. It's the word suke, your personality, your wants, your desires, your will. The third term is used here. It's the word zoe. And it's a term that speaks of life outside of the biosphere or outside of the personality. It's something that begins now and goes forever. It's not just a length of time, it's a quality of time. It could be translated age-abiding life. And again, it's not just something that happens in the sweet by and by. Eternal life is always spoken of in the Bible. It's something you experience now. If you're a Christian, you have, present tense, eternal life that will go on forever and will outstrip the bios, the biological life. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Zoe. Then Jesus prayed to his father in John 17, this is eternal life. Zoe. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We have hope. Our faith is hopeful. Our faith is based on something more than well, I'm feeling good right now and I've come to Christ just so I can feel better about myself. I've got something waiting for me that outstrips this life. It's hope. Now, hope is not wishful thinking. I know that today we use the term hope in sort of a polite manner. Uh, uh, hope you have a great day. I'm not certain you will. I just hope you will. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Uh, it might. Uh, some people have what they call a hope chest. It's wishful thinking. In the Bible, the term hope means confident expectation. It's a very strong term. It means though I don't possess it right now, I am confident that one day I will. It's not, boy, you know, I hope, I hope I make it to heaven. Ooh, I'm really hoping. I don't know if I will, but I hope so. And you speak to a lot of people, that's how they speak of heaven. Are you going to go to heaven? Well, I hope so. <laughs> when the Christian says, I hope so, it means I'm confident that I will. Like Paul said, 
being confident of this very thing, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He wouldn't go, I hope so. He was confident that he would. And that's the kind of word that the Bible in the New Testament uses for hope. Let me read what F.F. Bruce said about this. We are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order, so soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed in the eternal order where the promises of God are made good to His people in perpetuity. Your faith works because it's hopeful. It's leading somewhere. The hope of eternal life. A few things to say about this hope before we move on in our study on faith. This hope makes you holy. If you are filled with the hope of eternal life, it makes you holy. James, excuse me, John in 1 John 3 said, Everyone who has this hope, it was the hope of eternal life he was speaking about, hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Not only does it make you holy, it encourages you to serve God. If you know what's ahead of you, and you know that one day you're going to stand before God as your benevolent judge, and He's going to hand out rewards to you based on what you did, or the lack of rewards based on what you didn't do, that gives you a little bit of impetus, doesn't it? Now, you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith, grace, through faith, not of yourself. By believing in Christ, you're acquitted and you're saved. But your status and position in the kingdom will be determined by your service now. The Bible is very clear on that. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, each one's work will become clear. For the day, that is the day of the Lord of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work in which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And Jesus talked about the faithful servant. And what are the words that you long to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. So knowing that encourages me to serve the Lord, to work for Him, because the retirement benefits are out of this world. <laughs> Literally. It's the hope of eternal life. And it should be said also that this hope takes the sting out of death. I was brought... This lesson was brought to me in, in the clearest fashion in the last few weeks where I've conducted about, in the last two weeks, three funerals. I'll tell you, when you do a Christian's funeral, you can stand up here or at the front of the assembly and you can look at a sea of faces and you can instantly see who tracks, who's really into and tracking with what you're saying and who's completely oblivious to it, has no hope. You can see on the faces of people as you share the promises of Scripture. You know, those who are, though they have tears, though they're grieving for the loss of the one that they've lost, they're grieving, they're weeping, yet there is that nodding and that hope that's behind that. You look at a lot of other faces, it's just kind of like, I'm in oblivion, I'm in complete darkness, I can't track, I can't understand, I have no hope. But this kind of hope takes the sting out of death. And I did a funeral for a family in this church, a gracious lady who loved Jesus Christ, and she's now in heaven. I don't grieve for her. I grieve for her family. I pray for her family. A very difficult time, but her husband stood up, her son stood up, next son stood up, her daughter stood up, and all shared with such hope. 
takes the sting out of death. Oh, death! Oh, grave, where is your sting? Where is your victory? There is no sting with that kind of hope. Like the little girl that was looking up at the sky and it was a beautiful sunset, said, Mommy, if heaven looks this good from the wrong side, what must it look like on the right side? I'm sure that when a person dies as a Christian, one of the first sentiments that person must express when he takes that first breath in God's presence is something like, Wow! This is awesome! I read about it, but I had no idea it was quite like this. takes the sting out of death. Notice in our verse about the faith that is hopeful. It's backed up by the promise of God. Notice what it says. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. You can confidently expect future glory because the one who promised that is not Uncle George or Aunt Mabel. It's God. God can't lie. It says in Numbers, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He is immutable. He doesn't change. You know, a promise is only as good as the one who gives it. There are some people that promise you things and you can think about them in your mind. I wouldn't share the person's name out loud if I were you. might be sitting next to you. But you all know people who say things, who promise things. And they might be well-meaning, but you just know the person. It just slips through the cracks. Ah, they won't perform on it. There are other people who have the reputation. They say they'll do it, they'll do it. I had a neighbor down the street when I lived in Huntington Beach. Sweetest guy. But he wasn't faithful to keep his promises. It was just part of his personality. He meant well. He talked big. Oh, I'll do that. I'll be over at this time. And oh, no, I'll take care of that. And uh, you just got to know after a while you couldn't rely on him. Because a promise is only as good as the one giving it. God cannot lie. And God who cannot lie has promised this hope before time began. I was reading about a Time Magazine article done years ago about a school teacher in Canada, a Christian, who read the Bible through 27 times. And on his 27th time, he wanted to catalog all of the promises in the Bible. It took him a year and a half. He came up with this, that there are 7,000, 7, 487 promises made by God to man. That ought to keep you busy for a while. 7,487 promises by God to man, two promises made by God to His Son, 991 promises made by one man to another, and though there were 7,000 plus promises from God to man, there were 290 promises made by man to God. Out of all those promises, it's only God's promises that Peter says are great and precious promises. Great and precious promises, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us. So faith is hopeful. Secondly, faith is responsible. Verse 3. But has in due time manifested His Word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Now let's just get all this in perspective. Faith is first of all elective, verse 1. The faith of God's elect, God 
chooses people in advance before you are born. He knows what your response will be. In His predestined knowledge, He elects you. Faith is elective. Faith is productive. Verse 1, it leads to godliness. Faith is hopeful. But also, faith is responsible. And what I mean by that is Paul says, God has given me a command. I'm his servant, verse 1, his bondservant, his apostle. I'm sent out to do whatever he wants me to do. And he's commanded me to preach the gospel. And the faith that I have that is expecting future glory, the hope of eternal life, is also a faith that makes me responsible to share what I know with others, the command to preach the gospel. As he says in this verse, which was committed to me according to the commandment of our God and Savior. And then in verse 4, to Titus. In other words, I've been given the command, I'm passing the mantle on to Titus. I'm putting him in Crete, verse 5, to follow up. I've started the evangelistic work there, and now I'm giving him the job to take over, to build these believers up, these followers in Jesus Christ up. So he obeyed it. There are some people who believe that you can have faith. And that's good. If you have faith, good for you. We're happy that you've come to know this Jesus Christ. Do me a favor, though. Just don't talk about it. Right? You can have all the faith you want. Everybody's entitled to his own belief. But politics and religion should never be discussed. You should always keep it to yourself. It's your private opinion. You should never get it out in the open. But Jesus said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Now remember, we just read this Sunday. Peter and John were arrested for doing that. They said, don't do this anymore in Jerusalem. Don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. You can do anything you want in Jerusalem. Just don't fill Jerusalem with your doctrine. What did they do? They disobeyed. They went right back out against the law and preached the gospel. Got taken before the Sanhedrin a second time. And Peter said, we have to obey God rather than man. God has given us a command to make a proclamation, to be responsible with that which we believe, the faith that we have. God has given us a commandment to preach the gospel. I wonder how many Christians are like the lepers at the gate of Samaria. Remember the story from the Old Testament? They were starving to death. The Syrian camp was not too far away. And a few of these lepers got together and said, look, if we stay at this gate, we're going to kick the bucket. We're going to die. We're lepers. The city is going to be invaded. If we sit here, we're going to die. Now, if we go to the camp of the Syrians, they might kill us. But either way, we're going to die. If we do nothing, we'll die. If we go over there, we'll die. But at least we'll die trying. We need food. They went over to the camp of the Assyrians. They found it completely vacated. To their surprise, they walked into a tent. They started taking all the jewels, all the food. They struck gold. And as they were taking for themselves and hoarding everything for themselves, one of them said, the thing that we are doing is not good. For this is a day of good news, and yet we remain silent. Here we are, we have so much, we can never use all this in a lifetime. The whole camp is vacated. We ought to be telling others about all of these riches. 
It's a day of good news, and yet we remain silent. Paul said, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. He commanded me to preach the gospel. I've done it. And I'm writing this letter and commissioning Titus to follow up. You as a believer have a privilege. It could be called a responsibility. I like the term privilege. To pass the baton of your faith to other people. Maybe a younger believer. Maybe you're a more mature believer. And you're thinking, gosh, I'm never used by God. I wish I could do something around this place. Hey, look around. There are so many young, fledgling, even struggling believers that would love to have your time, your arm, your encouragement, your instruction. And you know what? That person could even be your own son or daughter. You know, the beauty of passing the legacy of your belief onto your children is nothing like it. I heard of a father and a son who went to their doctor. The son wasn't feeling well. Went to the family physician because the son had become very ill. A battery of tests were run on the young kid. He had a terminal illness. Doctor broke it to the dad. The son didn't know yet. Now, the young kid was a believer. He had received Jesus Christ, surrendered his life to the Lord. And his father wasn't worried about his eternal state, but he was worried about how he was going to break the news to his son. He went over to the hospital with a heavy heart, broken heart, came to the bedside of his son, opened up the Bible, read a scripture, prayed with him, and then he broke the news. He said, son, the doctor's given you about three weeks to live. There were tears in the young boy's eyes, as well as the father's eyes. The dad said, son, are you afraid to meet Jesus? The little boy said, Daddy, I'm not afraid to meet Jesus if he's like you. Can you imagine what that would sound like to a father? Successfully being able to pass on the legacy of faith, knowing that this father adequately reflected the glory of God to his own son. Daddy, I'm not afraid if he's like you. Faith is responsible to my own son in the faith, Titus. He did it also with Timothy. Everything... Paul received, he passed on to others to see them raised up in the ministry. So, faith is hopeful. Faith is responsible. And finally, faith is gracious. Look also at verse 4. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, as you know, in all of Paul's letters, he opens them up with a greeting. It's a common greeting. Usually he just says grace and peace. Here he has, adds mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. A common greeting, but it's a sense of sweetness. He is expressing more than just, hi, how are you? He's expressing the sentiments, what he desires for Titus to experience. And though Paul, I think, was a type A personality, gung-ho for the gospel, uncompromising, there was at the same time, and I think a lot of people miss it, a sense of sweetness in his life, a sense of grace, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father. Now, if you were to walk down Greek streets in Athens or in Corinth, you would hear a common greeting. They'd say, charis, which meant grace or graciousness, kindness, extending a kind gesture to you. If you were to walk down a street in Jerusalem, they'd say shalom, which meant peace. These were common greetings. 
The term mercy is interesting. It means love shown to someone in abject poverty or in the most destitute circumstances. I'm wishing for you, Titus, God's grace, God's mercy, and then God's peace. Kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted. Here's my point in that. True faith leads to grace. When you come to believe in Jesus Christ, the seed grows within your heart, I believe. You start expecting and have being very hopeful in what's coming after this life, eternal life. Something that begins now and lasts forever. God promised it. You become responsible. You come to a place where you want to share with others. You want to be a viable working part of the body of Christ. You want to see lives changed through your life. It's a very healthy mark of maturity. And then also, God works His personality traits in you. God is a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of peace. And I think to become more like Him, you need to be more gracious and extending of mercy. Here's an example. The Pharisees. And when you think of the word Pharisee, does the word grace or mercy come to mind? No. Legalism comes to mind, does it not? Remember when Jesus went to Matthew's house for dinner? And the Pharisees started talking, Hey, how come your master eats with publicans and sinners? Jesus overheard them, though probably on the other side of the estate. He said, Excuse me, Pharisees. Those who are well don't need a doctor, only those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then he said, Go learn what this means. I desire what? Mercy and not sacrifice. Pharisees, you need to learn a lesson. Go find out what this means. I want mercy more than sacrifice. They were so picky about the sacrifices they would bring to the temple, the little peculiarities of their religion, but they neglected the heart of God, which was mercy. Question. Has God extended His grace to you? Do you deserve His love? Do you deserve His forgiveness? Any one of you? No one. No one does. If God extended His grace to you, then learn to extend it to somebody else. If that's God's character, God's trait, God of mercy and grace, the result will be peace. As it's often said, you can't reverse the order. Grace and mercy come before peace. When you experience God's grace and His mercy towards you, the result is peace. But learn to live in that grace and extend that grace to others. I have just enough time to read something. I've been reading a book, and I shared this with my pastoral staff this week, uh, by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Root of the Righteous. I'm going through it again. It's been uh, re-released. And there's a chapter, and it was chapters or a few paragraphs in this book. That's why I like this book. You can read it, read it quickly and take little chunks. It's called God is Easy to Live With. The title struck me, drew me in. God is easy to live with. Let me just read this little section to you. Satan's first attack upon the human race was his sly effort to destroy Eve's confidence in the kindness of God. Unfortunately for her and for us, he succeeded too well. From that day, men have had a false concept of God. And it is exactly this that has cut out from under them the ground of righteousness and driven them to reckless and destructive living. Nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy concept of God. Certain sects, 
such as the Pharisees, while they held that God was stern and austere, yet they managed to maintain a fairly high level of external morality. But their righteousness was only outward. Inwardly, they were whited sepulchers, as our Lord Himself told them. Their wrong conception of God resulted in a wrong idea of worship. To a Pharisee, the service of God was a bondage which he did not love, but from which he could not escape without a loss too great to bear. The God of the Pharisee was not a God easy to live with. So his religion became grim and hard and loveless. It had to be so, for our notion of God must always determine the quality of our religion. Much Christianity since the days of Christ's flesh have also been grim and severe. And the cause has been the same, an unworthy or an inadequate view of God. Instinctively, we try to be like our God, and if He is conceived to be stern and exacting, so we will be ourselves. From a failure properly to understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians even today. The Christian life is thought to be a glum, unrelieved, cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. The kind of life which springs out of such libelous notions must of necessity be a parody on the true life in Christ. It's most important to our spiritual welfare that we hold in our minds always a right concept of God. If we think of Him as cold and exacting, we shall find it impossible to love Him, and our lives will be ridden with servile fear. If again we hold Him to be kind and understanding, our whole inner life will mirror that idea. The truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings and His service one of unspeakable pleasure. He is all love, and those who trust Him need never know anything but that love. He is just indeed, and He will not condone sin, but through the blood of the everlasting covenant He is able to act toward us exactly as if we had never sinned. Toward the trusting souls of men His mercy will always triumph over justice. The fellowship of God is delightful beyond all telling. He communes with His redeemed ones in an easy, uninhibited fellowship that is restful and healing to the soul. He is not sensitive or selfish or temperamental. What he is today, we shall find him to be tomorrow and the next day and the next year. He's not hard to please, though he may be hard to satisfy. He expects of us only what he has himself first supplied. He is quick to mark every simple effort to please him and just as quick to overlook imperfection when he knows we meant to do his will. He loves us for ourselves and values our love more than galaxies of new created worlds. Unfortunately, many Christians cannot get free from their perverted notions of God. And these notions poison their hearts, destroy their inward freedom. These friends served God grimly, as the elder brother did, doing what it was right without enthusiasm, without joy, and seem altogether unable to understand the buoyant, spirited celebration when the prodigal comes home. Their idea of God rules out the possibility of being happy in His people and they attribute the singing and shouting to sheer fanaticism. Unhappy souls, these, doomed to go heavily on their melancholy way, grimly determined to do right if the heavens fall, 
and to be on the winning side in the day of judgment. How good it would be if we could learn that God is easy to live with. He remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. He may sometimes chasten us. It is true. But even if He does this, He does it with a smile, the proud, tender smile of a father who is bursting with pleasure over an imperfect but promising son who is coming every day to look more and more like the one whose child he is. Some of us are religiously jumpy and self-conscious because we know that God sees our every thought and is acquainted with all of our ways. We need not be. God is the sum of all patience, the essence of kindly goodwill. We please Him most not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into His arms with all of our imperfections, believing that He understands everything and He loves us still. So unlike the Pharisees, Jesus said those that are well don't need a doctor. You know what He was implying by that statement? You guys, you Pharisees, are a bunch of quacks. You're quick to point out the disease, but you have no remedy. I'm a doctor. I'm making house calls. This guy is a sinner. He's not worthy. I've come to wipe away his sins. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's sum it up. Faith is elective. God selects you. God knows your choices in advance. It is productive. It leads to godliness in verse 1. It is hopeful. It has the anchoring hope of Ionias Zoe, eternal life, something that outstrips the present. It is responsible. It seeks to use faith as something that is precious to be passed on to other generations, not just to be kept inside to make us feel good. And finally, it's gracious, filled with grace, mercy, and peace, as Paul extended that to Titus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the extension of your grace, that is your unmerited favor, and your mercy, that is your kind treatment to the down and out, and the peace that we experience because we've experienced that kind of treatment. We are all undeserved sons and daughters basking in your grace and your mercy, totally relying upon it. Lord, help us to enjoy it not to take it for granted, not to abuse it, but to enjoy our fellowship with You, to be quick to repent when our life is not pleasing to You, knowing, Lord, that You read our hearts and our motivations. And even if our heart condemns us, You're greater than our hearts. You know all things. Lord, I pray that our faith would be true faith that works, that is productive, that is hopeful, that is responsible, and one that is filled with the character of God in grace and mercy and peace. We thank you for the fine example in Paul the Apostle that we've studied in the last few weeks. We pray once again, Lord, that these truths would mark us, that tonight we would have some inventory time with you as we look at our own faith, We thank You, Lord, that faith is a gift that You give. It's the gift that keeps on giving from now all the way into eternity.